Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. If you would join me in Revelation chapter 3. Look at the first few verses of Next Church. For those of you who, this may be your first Sunday here or your first Sunday in a while, we're working through the first couple, well, first few chapters of Revelation where uh, Jesus is giving John, who is exiled on an island, uh, specific specific words to specific churches uh, in a specific region of the time. And so today we're going to be looking at that letter that the church at Sardis received. Not a very long letter, but very, very heavy. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write... Now, angel is the messenger, most uh, probably the pastor or the one who is delivering the message. Uh, A lot of times we get hung up on angel and uh, thinking some kind of angelic presence, but this word in Greek literally means messenger. In this context, it would be the person who has the message for the church. So to the angel of the church at Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are what? Dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in, my, in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, this is a single letter to a single church, but it's delivered like all the other letters to multiple churches. They're all found in one Uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation. So this is why at the end of each of these letters, it's let him who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So while these letters are written to specific churches, there are a lot of really good application that every church could make from these individual letters, including our own and certainly our culture. At the time, and I'm going to give you the, the typical history lesson here of Sardis because it's, it's quite good and rich. And it matters. It matters a lot because so far we've seen that every church that received a letter, their their literal history mattered to their uh, their culture and to their understanding of, of faith. And so at the time that Jesus spoke this to John, 
the city of Sardis that had been around for a, uh, quite a while. In fact, before it was named Sardis, it's actually its name was, was Hyde, H-Y-D-E. And uh, that's, if you've ever read the Iliad, I don't, I'm going to show a hands, but uh, uh, Homer actually refers to Hyde. It's actually the city of, of Sardis. But anyway, they had seen their very best days uh, and they were beginning to, to decline. 600 years before this, they actually had found some gold and silver uh, seams around Sardis uh, in their region. Uh, this was the capital city of the Seleucid Empire of all of, of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the area. They were the capital of just about all of uh, western uh, Turkey. But, uh, and, and they were uh, incredibly rich, and they didn't have to do anything to get it. I mean, it was just like money was just coming literally out of the, out of the ground for them. In fact, it was uh, Cronus who, again, I know that everybody doesn't love history. I love it. It really matters a lot. Uh, so let me just give you a quick spiel. But uh, Cronus was the, the king at the time, and, and he was a, well, they actually made up myths about him even. He was so, such an incredible leader that... Uh, his legacy far outlived his own life and uh, kind of a Paul Bunyan kind of, you know, m m uh, legends told about him that probably most likely were not true. But the whole world knew this guy. But he was the first one to establish a mint for the, uh, making coins for community. So uh, any modern money all has its uh, origin story in Sardis. That's where money was first up until that time, things were bartered, and uh, so now we have, we have uh, lots of money. He was the uh, renowned, all this area was known as Lydia. And you go back and read history, you'll see a lot of, a lot of really, really good origin stories from, from this area. Uh, Sardis actually sat on top. And this, again, I know, take a nap, somebody will punch you in a few minutes. But uh, this is really, really important. I know that a lot of you just want to believe me, but I, I want you to, to kind of know the history a little bit. Uh, it was on top of Mount Smolus. Smolus, was, his name was actually uh, from Greek mythology. He was the god of mountains, okay? It's really important because this Greek god, though he didn't really exist in this form, uh, but they had built their city on top of the mountain named after the god of mountains. If that gives you any kind of image of, of what this city would have been like, the highest mountain in the region, it was sheer cliffs positioned right on top. It was impregnable there, or at least they thought so. And that's why they built it there. It was, it was a fortress and they could not be touched. They had plenty of notice if anybody wanted to come and to attack them. Well, anyway, uh, it, it didn't really work out that way. Uh, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see King Cyrus, who was Cyrus the Great, came against Cronus during the time that Sardis believed themselves to be invincible. And he waged war for them for a really long time. Years, years, they stood around waiting for Sardis to give them some sign of weakness, but there was none. One day, one of Cyrus the Great's guards was just watching up on the high cliff, and they saw one of, one of Cronus's soldiers dropped his helmet, and it rolled down the hill. And he watched in secret as this soldier from Sardis walked down a very obscure path to get his helmet. 
He took notes. He went back. That night, they took the path up the hill to Sardis. And they found that the city wall had zero guards. They literally walked into the city and took over. And that's how Cyrus the... Eh, I mean, history calls him Cyrus the Great, but when you win battles like this, I think the best we can do is Cyrus the, eh, I mean, you know, I mean, okay, eh, good job. But he went on to destroy, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar and took over the Babylonian Empire, and then it ended up becoming the, the Medes and the Persians took over with King Darius. These, all these things are happening at the same time, and Sardis was very important during these days. It's where a lot of Cyrus's money came from, Sardis. Sardis was very important. 200 years later, this is a great leader called Antiochus the Great. Now, if you were a king, apparently you wanted to put great at the end of your name. That's what we're, we're kind of learning here. But uh, Antiochus the Great did the exact same thing to Sardis, almost the exact same thing. When they got to the top of the hill, no guards. What had happened was Sardis had become so confident in its inability to be destroyed or used or ruined that they did not guard themselves. And that had become a history for Sardis generation after generation. They continued to be defeated even though they were the most, the best situated city in the ancient empires. Now, though it is in decline by this time because they had been taken so many times, they still had this seam of wealth. So you could kind of roll over them, but it really didn't affect them because they had enough money to substantiate themselves. You could continue to defeat them, but they would just come up with more money. You didn't have to work hard. In fact, most of the modern world knew that if you really wanted to make a lot of money without much work, you kind of go to Sardis and just walk behind rich people because there were a lot of them. So they were in decline, still a lot of wealth, going through the motions, acting like they were something, but everybody knew when you thought of Sardis during these days, most of the world would go, yeah, they, they, have a, they talk a, a great game, but there's no substance there at all. You getting the, you getting the point? They had decided that they were going to believe their own hype. It's dangerous. So successful, had such a good history, had a promising future. They had no persecution. Their reputation was good, but they were in decline, and they were the only ones who didn't know it. Among the, gar, uh, the gods that were in Sardis, I want to talk about that for a moment. Artemis was worshipped there. The Romans called her Diana. But the, uh, the temple, just to kind of give an idea of the, of the culture there, the temple at Sardis to Artemis was more than double the size of the Parthenon. If you can think about the magnitude of how these, that just shows you the wealth that they had the front columns were six feet wide to the temple of Artemis. Money and, well, there was money and no struggle in Sardis. Their money had made them strong, but 
They were weak, they were soft, and and they had grown to where all they thought about was ease, comfort, pleasure. It was really easy to beat Sardis. Everyone did. Easy to sit back and relish victory when there was no fight. So I say all that to say the history was really, really important to them, who they were, where they come from, where they were headed. And I think for us to fully understand what Jesus is trying to say to them, it's also important for us to, uh, to, to read that. So back to chapter 3, verse 1. These things says, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. If you go back again to, Genesis, or to Revelation chapter 1, you will see that almost in every letter, Jesus uses some form of description to himself, to each individual. In chapter 1, he gives the full description, but to each letter, he gives a partial of his description to signify specific things. Jesus here is describing himself to those who are depending upon their own power, their own strength, their own materialism, their own abilities. He's describing himself as the one who has the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the one the only one that is capable of giving the Spirit to them. The Holy Spirit is a guard, our protection, our safety. And if the church wants it, it has to go through Jesus Christ to get it. And that's what Jesus is making very clear. Jesus has this guard, this seal to give to the church. And you cannot get it from yourself. You cannot get it from being good. You cannot get it from being wealthy. You cannot get it from being comfortable. You can only receive the safety and the protection through Jesus Christ. And that's what he's telling the church at Sardis. Jesus refers to the seven stars. We know he's talking to the whole church and not just a few of them. He said, I know your works. I know that you have a name that you are alive. What a church is and what a church does is never, ever hidden from God. And one of the things that I want us to understand permanently, is that the church is people. The church is organic. The church is not an organization. And so many times we get caught up in belonging to an organization. And we start thinking contractually. We start thinking about a place. We start thinking about times of service. And we start thinking about organizational structure when we think about church. I would love for us to let that die and for us to truly understand that the church is the people of God as they relate to one another. That's what the church truly is. And so if you want to to say that a church is what it is on paper, that is incredibly dangerous. When you start thinking about what a church is based on its website, that's incredibly dangerous. Or even its creeds and its doctrines and its truth. The church is never better than the proper application of God's people working together. That's what a church is. And so when we say that over at my church we do this or at my church we believe that, that doesn't exist if the individual people are not producing and bearing fruit of it. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to them. They're they're hiding behind their structure. They're hiding behind their professions. But there's no no follow-through. So he is, as he says in chapter 1, always walking among everything that bears his name. 
You will be judged. We will be judged one day. But make no mistake. He's judging us right now. One day we'll be sentenced. But we're always being judged. Because he's always walking among the stars. He says that you have a name that you are alive. Jesus knew the reputation of the church. Jesus also knew the truth. If you looked at the church of Sardis, you'd see a lot of signs of life. Vitality. Giving, serving, meeting. In the church at Sardis, like the city of Sardis, everything seemed alive. Everything seemed good. But it's in decline. In fact, Jesus didn't use the term decline. Jesus said, but you are dead. So, I made this in all bold in my notes. I won't say it as loudly as I wrote it. Reputation does not matter. What people think about us does not matter. What's true as a church is very true as individuals. What people think about you does not matter. There is only one judge who can rightly judge all things. And we can impress ourselves and we can pat ourselves on the back. We can tell everybody all of our numbers and all the meals we've served and all the dollars we've given and all the missionaries we've sent. But this thing right here cannot be hidden from him. Oh, we can go through the motions. Sardis going through the motions. Making professions. Making proclamations. No substance. What you are able to get people to think about you, listen, let's just be honest. All of us care. Can we just admit that? We all care about what people think. And if you say, I don't care what anybody thinks, that's still a hard issue. And you're probably just trying to protect yourself from the times when you did care what people thought, but you didn't like it. It's just hard-heartedness. It's a different side of pride. We all care. We all take into consideration when I think this, when I say this. Now, we're on, maybe because of personalities, sometimes we're on different sides of it. So there's a lot of people who think, okay, if I say this, what will they think? So how do I need to say it so that they'll think well? There's other people who just say it and then think, oh, I wonder what they think of me. Uh, And so we're on different sides of that, but we all care pretty desperately what other people think. And oftentimes, we manipulate situations to cast ourselves in the very best light. Of course we would. That would make sense. Who in the world would manipulate circumstances or the story to cast themselves in the worst light? Whatever you're able to get people to think about you does not matter. How you're able to present yourself does not matter. Oh, it matters to men. It does not. What other people think about you will not, God will not grade or judge on the curve. You know, like you take a test 
Or you get to get your final at college and they'll say, all right, 60% of your grade's going to be on the test, 40% homework assignments. Uh, God doesn't grade like that. He sees. This is not just true at church. It's also very true in our personal lives. I've, I, I think, again, I don't want to get all preachery. It sits when, right? I know. I, uh, but I have noticed in my life, as some of you may have as well, social media will be our undoing. Because you're able, to, you're able to tell your own story. Used to, you couldn't tell your own story. Everybody else had their derivative of your story. But now, you can post whatever picture you want and make everybody you know envious of your perfect life. And, and if somebody has something to say about your opinion, just delete it. You can create this whole reality that everybody else wants to be like. And I know we can laugh about it, but I'm telling you, our young people have never lived in a world where that doesn't exist. It is destroying their ability of self-awareness, self-realization, and having a purpose outside of their reputation. Anytime you can control your own narrative, anytime you write your own history, and we're really headed that way quickly, right? I mean, get... Getting to tell your own story, it doesn't match reality. And, and, we, and we have that. I, I, I read a lot, and I will tell you, there are things I learned as a child and as a student and through all the history that I've made my way through. And now it's like, you know, you got a specific thing you want to tell or a specific thing you want to prove. It's like you just go back and you can retell history, rewrite history so that it fits what you want people to believe. So dangerous. A good reputation, though, we spend a lot more time on our reputation than we do our character, if you think about it. Think about how much time you spend on social media. And I know it's fun, right? I mean, it's how you get to know prayer requests and stuff. We, we use social media for a lot of really good things. In fact, I try to get off of social media for a, a long time because it is so controlling. But I couldn't. Because there were too many things I was missing. And I say that with like no laughter because when I would find out things and I would try to talk to somebody about it, well, I put it on Facebook. Well, I'm not on Facebook. If you want me to know something, right here is my face. Book something with me. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to be on Facebook. But I don't want to miss anything either. I mean, but what? So, I mean, I know everybody wants to tell their own story or they want to compare their story with everybody else's that they know. Oh, what's going on in everybody's life? And you click on somebody's picture and you're like, oh, when did they take a vacation? Oh, well, look what she's wearing. Well, dun, 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 dun. and before long, and listen, and they only put that stuff on there to make you click on it because they want to be approved and they want to be valued. And oh, when did God help us? Again, I'm not anti Facebook, I am anti losing our footing on what really matters. And knowing who the real judge is and who, whose applause we're living for. You know, a good, a good reputation is no guarantee of true spiritual character. And that's what Jesus is trying to build. We spend more time comparing ourselves to people on Facebook than we do in the scripture. 
I can just about guarantee that for most people. We spend more time on Facebook than we do building character. Probably care more about our reputation. We got plenty of time to worry about our relationship with God, but you only got so long to build your reputation among people. Dead indicates no struggle, no fight, no persecution. You see, in Sardis, there was a really, really large population of Jews. And because the Jews lived there in, in, in the populace, uh, Rome often just turned their eye because Christianity was kind of the same thing as Judaism. You know, they have the one God and they go to their meeting and they do good things. And so they, they were so far off the radar and they were so lazy and complacent. They really were no threat to the Roman Empire at all. They weren't standing, there, so there was no persecution. In fact, this is one of the reasons why the church continued to do so well is because they were completely free, but they had no power. And so all they had was their social media posts. Hey, we're doing this thing. And, hey, and all the other churches are scrolling through Facebook and they're like, man, this, this church is tearing it up. This church has got no limits. This church has got all kinds of resources. Look at their this and look at their that. Boy, they got a great church over there at Sardis. Why can't our church be more like Sardis? Why can't our church have programs like Sardis? Why didn't our church people dress like the church at Sardis? Sardis has got it going on. No, Sardis has got money. But Sardis is dead as a doornail. Compare yourself to other churches. And every other church looks at Sardis and says, wow, they got a great reputation over there. Wish we were more like them. Listen, other churches' reputation of your church doesn't matter. The only reputation that matters is what Jesus Christ says about us. Sardis wasn't a threat to Rome, and sadly, Sardis wasn't a threat to Satan. Left him alone. They lived within the peace of Rome, but they lived within the wrath of God. Now I wonder which one we would prefer, the peace of Rome or the wrath of God. Now listen, I'm telling you, that day is coming for us to have to decide. It's coming. It may not come in our lifetime. It's coming where you will have to decide, do you want peace with Rome, which will provide the wrath of God. The church at Sardis is the perfect model of the gospel without Jesus. Sardis is what a good church looks like without Jesus. Good, but no God. Success, but no spirit. Look at verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You know, I love, I love the fact, and, I, and that's why I'm standing here this morning, is that God gives us an opportunity to do self-evaluation before he does his final evaluation. And I want us to understand that this, this message is not to condemn anyone. 
or, or to condemn anything. It's to remind us that you have time to do self-evaluation. It's the very reason that you're hearing this right now. And we've been hearing it for 2,000 years. There is time for self-evaluation. There is time for you to remember. There is time for you to repent. Strengthen what you have. Listen, it's dead, but remember who Jesus is. He is the resurrection and the life. Remember, he's the one who brings dead things back to life. So though it is dead, if you'll repent, I'll resuscitate you. I'll bring you back. You'll breathe again. Just take that thing that changed your life to begin with and fan it to a flame. Just an ember is left, but it still matters. Let me say this, and I, and I don't know if it'll resonate or not, but as a pastor, it really, really does, is that all of the details and all the nitty-gritty of doctrine and all of the long words that men sit in offices and make up and write books about, all the mysteries of what numbers mean and what dragons mean and what a horn is and all of the eschatology and all of the stuff and the signs and the prophecies, the power is in the simple things. The power is in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The power is in the cross. The power is in the forgiveness of sin. You can get wrapped up in all the other stuff if you want, and sometimes it's quite confusing. It's fun to talk about. It's fun to have opinions about. Sometimes it's even fun to argue about. But let me tell you where the power's at. The things you first heard and seen. That's where the power is. The life of Jesus the Redeemer, the Savior, the fulfillment of every promise that God ever made us. That's where the power's at. Hold fast to that thing that you received and heard and repent. He says, I have not found your works perfect before God. And this is kind of scary because they obviously have works, <laughs> but I have not found your works perfect before God. What is, what is perfect? What is a perfect work? Well, it's an act for God by God, right? That's a perfect work. It's like something that we do for his glory empowered by his spirit. It's a right act for the right reason. So these, this church did right things, but they didn't really know why they were doing it. Their heart wasn't in it. Well, they were serving people so they could have a good reputation. They were loving people so that people would love them back. It was all selfish. Everything they did looked great inside and outside. But it didn't flow from the heart of God. I think of Nadab and Abihu, who in the Old Testament, these are the sons of of Aaron who go into the altar and they make profane fire. You remember the, the fire that they made? And God had told the priests how to make it, told them how important it was. They went in, made it in some weird way. Now, let me ask you the question. Is the fire before the Lord, is the incense before the Lord, is it an important thing? Yes. Is the fire an important thing? Yes. Are the priests the ones required to do it? Yes but they did it the wrong way. And it cost them their life. I think of uh, a man like Uzzah. You remember when David, they finally found the Ark of the Covenant? The Philistines had stolen it and it was in their care and they put it on a new cart 
I love the new carts because you don't have to worry about new carts. New carts are, they're new. And they put the Ark of the Covenant on the new cart and everybody walked around it and they're headed back to Jerusalem and they can't wait to dance and celebrate. They're taking the presence of God back into the capital, Jerusalem. And then the ox hit a little rock in the road, a little ditch. The Ark of the Covenant kind of scooches. Uzzah reaches his hand out to, I mean, is the Ark of the Covenant important? Is it important to be in Jerusalem? It's important, but Uzzah touched it. So, wow. I mean, so if you don't know the story, it sounds kind of, wow, well, I touched it. Yeah, well, the Lord said don't touch it. But was, but was Uzzah doing a good thing? Of course. We don't want the Ark of the Covenant to fall off the cart. and I mean, Ten Commandments spill out. No telling what Aaron's rod's done by now. But if you go over into the book of Exodus, when the Lord told them, he said the Levites will put poles through the side and they will carry it up on their shoulders everywhere it goes. Important? Don't put it on no new cart. I know you're trying to do me favors, but do what I told you. Don't do me any favors. But you know what? We always have our better way than what God said. And over and over and over in the New Testament, they keep trying to rewrite and they keep doing what is right in their own eyes. And you know what it begets? It begets death. Every time you try to do something that God said don't do or not do things that God said do, death. You say, well, I've gone along with this far. I'm telling you, we're still waiting for the sentencing. Just because God has not struck us dead does not mean he's pleased. And it paints God as a bad picture. But listen, God is good and he only wants good for us. Therefore, he's made the rules clear. And he's taught us how to love. How do we love? Look at Jesus. How do we forgive? Look at Jesus. How do we live? Look at Jesus. Over and over we see he, he is our model. Not our best ideas are trying to help God out. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. This is God saying you need to prepare for the future. Hold fast. But he also tells us how to deal with the past and repent. So many want to just start holding fast and starting from here. But what Jesus says is you also have to go back and recognize what brought you to this place. And we need repentance. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says this, When you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. So Jesus says, If you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, as a soldier who has found the pathway to your impenetrable fortress of solitude. I will find when you are not guarding yourself, when, you, when there's no one around because you think you are invincible, and I will come upon you. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a whole lot of things I could probably tolerate that came upon me. Jesus isn't one of them. What a threat. But you have a few names. Even in Sardis. I love that. There's a few names, even in Sardis, of all places. 
who have not defiled their garments. Only a few. And so all of you dead people, you need to watch those that are still alive in your midst because there is a remnant there. In Pergamos, in Thyatira, there were a few bad among the good. But now we're in the complacent church, Sardis, sleepy church, where there's just a few good among the bad. You see, the gods in the temples couldn't be approached wearing dirty clothes. If you were to go to any of these temples, you'd have to wear, wear clean clothes. And he says, you have not defiled your garments. Seeming that they were not living pure lives. This wasn't just, this, these were Christians who went to church on Sunday and they did all their good things, but their lives were impure the rest of the time. God even told Israel to always be washed when they came to worship. You see, what you are dressed in, and this has zero indication on what you wear to church, but it's usually a picture of what you wear is a picture of your righteousness and purity. So Jesus is saying there's only a few among you righteous that are walking in Christ's likeness. But all you need is the model of one person left. And so white garments would be seen as pure righteousness. This means that they are walking for his fame, not their own. His name, not their own. His glory, not their own. And as a reward, he said that you will, for those that have not defiled themselves, you will walk with me. I love that. You'll walk with me. In white, white always means purity. So you will walk with me in purity. And some would say, okay, well, we got white clothes. No, a little bit later, he's going to say that you'll be dressed in white. Here, you're just going to walk in white. Not white clothes, just white. Jesus is pure. And when you walk with him, you are walking Impurity. What could there be a better reward than walking with Jesus? This is the whole point. Well, I guess what other people think about you is important. Walking with the popular crowd, being recognized by the people you admire, those would be great things. And the very fact that we're asking that question tells me that, man, we are really lopsided in our faith. And the reason that we exist is to have a good reputation among people. The reason that we exist, the things that we do, the compromises we make is to be able to, to be approved and applauded. God help us that our hearts wouldn't beat to be able to walk in purity with Jesus himself. There is no greater reward than that. These who live for God's glory at the cost of their own will be rewarded with more intimacy with Jesus. And this reward is ultimately a better motivator than the fear of punishment. And I want you to think about that. There's two things going on. Jesus said, if you follow their example, you'll be able to walk with me. If you don't follow their example, I'm going to come upon you. What, what motivates you? Where, where would your motivation be if you were to say, man, the fear of judgment, I think I'd better do better. Or intimacy with Jesus, I think I'll do better. It's not about doing. 
It's about character. But what motivates you? The fear of hell or the reward of heaven? What's a greater motivator? And I'll tell you, the, great, the thing that you identify as the greater motivator will say a whole lot about our character currently with Jesus. Some people are Christians because they're afraid, but perfect love casts out fear. And the closer we get to Jesus, the more we serve him because we love him, and the less we serve him because we're afraid of judgment. If you serve Jesus because you're afraid of judgment, there may need to be some repentance in your life. Sardis was filled with professors who were not possessors. Outwardly Christians, but inwardly consumed with self. So those who overcomes will be clothed in white garments and will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So Jesus identifies the overcomers with those few names who've not defiled their garments. These overcomers will also wear white garments as they're walking in white with Jesus. I would just encourage us this morning, don't judge yourself by your intention. Judge yourself according to Jesus. He said, I won't blot your name out of the book of life. In ancient times, I won't go into all of it, but in ancient times, if you were a citizen of a certain community or city or town, when you died or became a criminal, they'd mark your name out of the book. You're not a citizen anymore. And what Jesus is saying here is that when you become a citizen of the kingdom, your name is written in the book of life. But what you do with Jesus will determine how long that stays there. Now, I know there's a lot of debate about what he actually means here, but what I'm trying to say is once you defect, once you walk away, once you no longer live or trust in the life of Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. Your name's not written in the book because of a check mark. It's because we've identified with Jesus. We care about what he thinks about us, not what the world thinks about us. And so for those, it seems at least five times the scripture talks about the book of life. Blotting names out of the book of life. It tells me several times in the book of Revelation, this is a real book about a real possibility. I think at the most remote, I'm not going to teach all of it, but at the most remote truth here is this. He is warning us. He is warning the church that just because you look good, it doesn't mean that you'll pass the test. Just because you do good, just because you give well, just because you have a great reputation, just because the community loves you, just because everybody thinks only the parts of your life that you've posted. We need to remember the simple things. The death, the life, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he needs to be the one that we live for the applause. So I want us to evaluate before sentencing. What is it? What is it that we prefer from men 
that we've grown complacent in our relationship with God? What are the things that hold us back from living fully devoted to the glory of the Father? What are those things? Our looks, our family, our stuff, our fame, our legacy. What is it? I'm just going to tell you, brothers and sisters, it ain't worth it. We need to live not just in balance where it seems like they lived, do bad things, you know, but do enough good things to balance it out. What I would encourage us to do is to make sure that our lives are the full representation of the life of Jesus Christ as we live. Humble ourselves before the Lord. Seek and serve him alone. Lord, we love you and we thank you that we have seen and we have heard that we know the simple things of Scripture. And I pray that you would forgive us. But Lord, as a, as a, as a people, we seek direction and we seek wisdom, but as individuals, Lord, I pray that you would put upon us a heart of repentance. Lord, if there are those that are here this morning that may have cashed out for complacency, for maybe, we, maybe even lured to sleep because of the idol worship that's all around us, whatever posts that we're believing, whatever books that's been rewritten that we're believing, I just pray, Lord, that your spirit this morning with power would convict our hearts and would lead us to repentance. Grant us that, Lord. We pray, for, we pray for a revival and not one of old. We pray for a new revival that sparks new life, not things that could just remind us of yesterday, but things that could progress us forward so that we could see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you stand with me, please? This morning, if, if there is a need of repentance in your life, if, you, if this morning the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and you, you know, when, when I say what is it and you immediately think of what it is, that's not you, that's the Holy Spirit. And he's giving you a chance for self-evaluation before his evaluation. And this morning, don't settle for what will people think. This morning is what is the Spirit saying to the church? Obey him and him alone. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.